Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning, everybody. Go ahead and have a seat. It's so good to see you all. Thank you, Cliffy. And thank you for the poem. That was lovely. Did I get it? Maybe. For the record, I wrote you the simple one. Here, speak into my mic. For the record, that was the simpler one. Oh, great. Okay, yeah. yeah. Okay. Thank you, Tyler. You're welcome. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's so good to be back at Commonway and to see you all and to be here with everybody and to, and to see my friends. Uh, for those of you who might not know or have just forgotten by now, my wife, Stephanie, and I used to be a part of Commonway until we moved to Kentucky this summer. I was on staff as the college pastor for the past six years, uh, and I'm just... Super, super grateful to be back here with you guys this morning. Um, Before we jump in, I'll just give kind of a quick update on our life in Lexington, just in case we don't get to chat. I have started a job uh, in Lexington, uh, in Wilmore, Kentucky, as a teacher's assistant at an elementary school, Wilmore Elementary School. This is me and my nephews who go to the school. We get to hang out a lot. As you can imagine, it's a blast, and we have a great time. Uh, so that's what I'm doing, uh, loving it a ton, get to spend a lot of time with kiddos, helping them learn, and helping out the staff, which is great. Uh, Stephanie is still great doing her thing. She's still working for the Wesleyan Church's national headquarters for their missions branch, and Michael is basically the same. He's cute. He can't do anything. He can't, can't walk, can't talk. This kind of does that all the time. Uh, Stephanie and I will be expecting our second kid, our little uh, daughter, in, the, in November. So November 19th is the due date. Yeah. So, so we're excited uh, for that. This is Cliff's picture. He took that. He's so talented. We think of him every time we look at it. So, yeah, that's, that's what's uh, going on with us. So, yeah, I know we haven't been gone very long, but I truly mean it uh, from the bottom of my heart when I say I really, really do miss the low cost of living in Muncie and, and breaded, breaded tenderloins and that kind of thing. So, no, all, all kidding aside, I, I know we both, and, and probably me in particular, I miss Commonway every Sunday. Um, and I think about all my friends, and um, God, Gus, you knucklehead. Um, I just think about you guys all the time. So, seriously, thank you. It's so good to be back. Uh, and thank you to people who've checked in on us. We, we really, really appreciate it. That said, let's jump in. So, as I've moved to a new state and a new city and started a new job and all of that, you know, I get asked a lot, oh, what did you do before you moved here? What is it that you used to do? And I kind of always have this moment of pause when I'm telling people that I used to, you know, work for a church or I used to be a pastor because, you know, just sometimes I feel like it can, it can get a little awkward to say that to someone. Telling someone you're a pastor or even just telling them that you're a Christian can, you know, just, you can come up with a million different connotations for that or associations and you never know what, you know, people are thinking when they hear that word. You could be associated with these guys, which, you know, might not always be the thing that you want. And, you know, really it's because of these associations that there are times you can tell that letting someone know that you are a pastor or used to be, or even just that you're a Christian, can kind of sometimes land a little bit weird. And I think there are sort of, you know, two reactions that I'll sometimes get that can be hard to navigate. One reaction is that, you know, someone will ask, 
what did you used to do? Oh, I, I used to be a pastor. I, you know, I used to work for a church. And their demeanor kind of instantly shifts and changes. And you can tell they're a little uncomfortable. And they kind of get this expression like a bad smell has just entered the room. And I, I rarely have anyone be like actually rude or, or unkind or anything like that. But I can definitely feel times when someone clearly doesn't really love the church or maybe has had a bad experience with religion or religious people, and now I am lumped in with that same crowd. And, you know, understandably so. Or at the very least, you can tell they're not super interested in religion and they just kind of want to quickly avoid whatever sales pitch about church I'm going to throw at them. And, of course, I, I get that. That's understandable because, you know, who knows what weird Christian stuff or people they've encountered in the past. And I'm always quick to try to, you know, disarm any tension and make them feel comfortable and reassure them that I'm not trying to get them and I'm more or less a normal person. And essentially, I think what they're trying to find out is how religious is this person versus, you know, how good of a person are they actually to hang out with? Which, by the way, I get because it's the same thing I do when I meet someone who gives me the other reaction when I tell them I used to be a pastor. On, on the other end of the spectrum, if I tell someone I used to work at a church or in ministry, suddenly their whole demeanor changes and it's as if a sweet smell has entered the room. And they start throwing around phrases like God willing and blessed and various other kind of Christianese speech. And now I'm the uncomfortable one because this person is starting acting like we're a part of some, you know, secret club. And now I'm trying to figure out, you know, how religious is this person versus how good of a hang are they actually to be around. And it's not that I don't want to meet fellow believers or anything like that, but sometimes people will kind of, you know, transform into Ned Flanders as soon as they find out you're a church person. I've been watching The Simpsons recently. By the way, um, you know, these are often the same people who they're pretty disappointed and lose some of their charm when they find out I didn't go to seminary. Now, what both of these interactions reveal is our distaste when someone is no longer able to relate to normal, everyday people because they are so religious. I know I have encountered people who don't really have much to talk about unless they're just talking about their own religious beliefs, and I don't think they really have any interest about what's going on in my head. Have you, you know, maybe encountered this from time to time? Surely, some of you know what I'm talking about. A person who seems like church and Bible verses are, have kind of become their whole personality, and they're, you know, high on morals, has a quiet preachiness about them, but is not actually particularly life-giving to be around, um, you know, and to anyone who's not like them, especially someone who maybe doesn't always practice what they preach. If only we had a word for this type of person. Can anyone think of it? Answer begins with an H. Hypocrite, right? A hypocrite. Nobody likes to be around a hypocrite. It's the worst. And in fact, it is the seminal roadblock to people having any interest in becoming a Christian. 
The Christian sociologist um, David Kinnaman uh, conducted a study through the Barna Group that uh, confirmed what many of us probably suspected, that by far hypocritical Christians, hypocritical religious people is the number one thing that causes people to doubt Christianity. More than science, more than human suffering, uh, more than religious pluralism, hypocritical religious people take the top spot. You know, there's that famous phrase that Gandhi said, you know, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. And you kind of may be thinking like, geez, Louise, Gus, take it easy. Like, we're all sitting right here. And <laughs> by the way, you're kind of on the same team. Um, but unfortunately, this age-old gripe is not unfounded. Another study of Kinnaman's and the Barna Group uh, studied and measured the actions and attitudes of self-proclaimed Christians as being either uh, Christ-like or Pharisaical. And sadly, as you can see, the study showed that by far the largest group were believers with Pharisaical actions and attitudes, self-proclaimed Christians. And a distant second was, you know, folks with Christ-like attitudes but hypocritical actions. And it's, you know, so in other words, there is a reason that this is people's most common hang-up with following Jesus. But, you know, the bittersweet news, I guess, is that this problem is nothing new because, uh, you know, the life and teachings of Jesus can, show, can offer us some insights into how we might avoid the hypocrisy that is so rampant. In fact, you know, in the Gospels, if Jesus and his disciples were to have had like a rival gang that they're constantly like going up against and butting into, it was the hypocritical religious elite, not drunks or prostitutes or tax collectors, but the same hypocritical folks that get in people's crawl today. From the beginning to the end of Jesus' ministry, it is a defiant, disruptive, and threatening shift in the thinking of religious leaders at the time. Many of Jesus' miracles and the parables seem to almost be pointed at the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And Jesus pretty openly kind of almost mocks them and will turn a crowd of people against them. And in the end, it's the, the religious elite who can't even recognize the goodness of God when he's walking around right in front of them and they come to arrest Jesus. And just a, a cursory understanding of Jesus' life would make it very evident that it was, the religious, it was religious hypocrisy that bothered Jesus more than anything else. And his most explicit and lengthy teaching on this that Jesus gives uh, against this kind of hypocrisy comes in Matthew 23. If you want to turn there, that's where we'll spend some time. This is a chapter that's often called the seven woes. In, in your Bible, that's probably what it's headed as. And we're gonna, I'm going to go through each of the woes and kind of give a brief overlook of it and what Jesus is saying about hypocrisy. So, um, each one begins with this phrase, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. And I won't repeat this each time, but that is how everyone begins. Woe to you, you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. 
In other words, you guys are total hypocrites. You say that you are the gatekeepers of true religion, but really you're just kind of the bouncers. You just want to slam the door in people's faces. There's no way you actually want to welcome people, love people, or show people generosity. You just kind of memorize the rules of the game so you could call people out on it. You don't actually want to play. And of course, in doing so, they also totally miss out on the point of God's law. So they, you know, they use religion to shut the door, and uh, you know, it's a tremendous exercise in missing the point. And because of that, they kind of miss out themselves. Jesus goes on, Woe to you! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you've succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. We have all probably uh, experienced this phenomenon or seen it in person if you go to maybe, you know, go to like a major city or you go to a major sporting event. Um, you will likely see someone standing on a street corner screaming at a crowd of people they don't know, they don't understand uh, about how wretched and sinful they are, hoping that that wins over a convert. And you maybe have had the feeling that I've had where you're watching them and you kind of think like, okay, you're using Bible verses, but I'm not really on board with what we're doing here. And if you saw someone kind of wander over and have a conversation with them and like join them, you wouldn't be like, all right, another one for the team. You'd probably be kind of bummed out that that happened. Jesus goes on, woe to you. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You know, this isn't too hard to think of in our own terms today. You know, on one level, we can all probably recall either a church we know of or maybe a headline that we've seen of a pastor who somewhere along the way forgot the church was a place of worship and a place to be in God's presence and eventually transformed it into kind of a platform for you know, greed and money. This expression that the Pharisees threw around, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, is bound by that oath, reveals that sacrifices and gold at the temple wasn't meant for them to be a practice to, be, to have a closer relationship with God. Instead, all of that God business was just a means to some other end. What Jesus is getting at is that for some people, the system of religion has become much more important than what it is actually pointing to. I know I can imagine a certain, you know, a person who holds our current, you know, cultural Christian beliefs and practice, not beliefs, but practices as sacred. You know, the way we do church, only hanging out with a certain type of person, the condemnation of certain behaviors or lifestyles, the assurance that I am a good person. Maybe some of this conveniently lines up with some already held political beliefs on either end of the spectrum. And the next thing you know, the culture matters more than the presence of God. Woe to you. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides. You strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Here Jesus points out, that the Pharisees are actually incredibly diligent in following the rules. 
that they don't just tithe the big stuff. They tithe all the way down to the plants, like in their little herb garden. Stuff that would have been very, very common back then. This wasn't luxurious, exotic stuff. This is, would have been like, you know, the bottles of like decade-old garlic powder you have in the back of your spicing, you know, as your spice rack. And, you know, that's taking things pretty seriously. But, of course, then you don't care about justice and mercy and faithfulness. You tithe the spices, but turn around and oppress the weak and show no mercy to the people who are broken. This analogy at the end is kind of us getting a little bit of like Jesus Christ comedy hour. Uh, you strain the gnat, but you swallow a camel. Um, this is Jesus using kind of the cleanliness around food laws as an illustration. A gnat was the smallest animal in, in the Jewish law that was unclean. So a gnat was the very, very smallest, and a, a camel was the largest. And Jesus' audience would have definitely known that. And, you know, gnats are everywhere now. Like, if you step outside, a cloud of gnats, like, swarms you. But I can only imagine back then with stuff kind of being harder to keep clean and food being slaughtered and prepped all the time and Ziploc bags, you know, had not been invented yet. Imagine how many gnats would have gotten everywhere, anytime, and it would have been inevitable that in your food and in your face, they'd just be there. And Jesus is saying, you strain out those gnats, but then you sit down for, you know, you sit down to barbecue an entire camel. You may, ac you know, you may accidentally inhale a gnat from time to time. Who hasn't? And, but you never, you know, it happens. You're on a run. Next thing you know, you swallowed a gnat. It's going to happen. But what you don't ever do is accidentally trip and fall and swallow a camel. And that's what Jesus is getting at. And that's what hypocrites are like. They sweat the incidentals and then blatantly and purposefully skirt virtues in other ways. Jesus goes on, woe to you. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Here, Jesus is warning us about superficial righteousness versus deep internal change. And my goodness, has this analogy aged well? Because if you have been in a Dick's Sporting Goods within the past few years, you'll know that the only way to be a cool kid is to carry around one of these two options. There are, whole, there are entire sports that have been removed from Dick's just so you can buy a Yeti cup. It's out of control. Before that, it was one of these, and I'm sure many of you, including myself, have fallen for these trends, but they are, of course, idiotic. No offense to anybody with like a Stanley Cup. Um, but uh, the good news is apparently cups have been an indicator of social, social status for a while now. Because even back then, people were, you know, carrying around shiny, fancy cu cups trying to look cool. But of course, it has nothing to do with the actual content of our character. Jesus teaches us to work on what's on the inside first. Uh, and that will actually make you the kind of person you want to be. You know, not a Yeti tumbler. We don't have time, you know, we don't, we're not going to get into how that transformation, you know, can take place other than to say it definitely doesn't start with appearances. It starts with a rearranging of our hearts. The sixth woe is very like the fifth one. Woe to you, you are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. 
Eugene Peterson, you know, writes it very poetically. You're like manicured grave plots, grass clipped and the flowers bright, but six feet down, it's all rotting bones and worm-eaten flesh. Hypocrisy may look good on the outside, but beneath the surface, you know, there's something sinister. And the very last woe is, is nuanced, and I think particularly relevant for us today, in, and especially kind of our cultural moment right now. Uh, people were bringing, what the heck? That's not the right slide. That's okay. I got it here. All right, everyone listen closely. It's not on the slide. The last one was nuanced. You build tombs for prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in those days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are descendants of those who murdered the prophets. So Jesus is saying, you hypocrites, you put graves on the, you know, you decorate the graves and you honor these righteous men and these prophets who were killed in the past and say, oh, well, we would never have done that. And he's saying, you're hypocritical. Yes, you was. Yes, you would have. This feels like a passage that you could kind of get in trouble for preaching these days. Because isn't it easy to look at history and say, I would never have done any of those terrible things. How could people do that back then? You know, think back to, you know, the Stanley Milgram thing from Psych 101. Or maybe at least we look at the atrocities that have been committed and rightfully honor and memorialize those, you know, those that the injustice was committed against and have empathy, but never quite turn the corner to asking yourself if you are any better than the oppressors of old. It can be a prickly subject to look at injustices of the past and associate it with yourself today, but Jesus challenges us to kind of scourge ourselves of even the deepest layers of hypocrisy. That maybe all the rottenness out there and way back then actually does have something to do with what's going on inside of me and you. This is an incredibly, you know, all of these together make up a, a very public and nuanced and explicit teaching from Jesus. He is not ambiguous in any way on this topic. And if you have ever been someone who is completely fed up with the hypocrisy of religious people, I hope that you know, this teaching from Jesus is an encouragement to you that he did not create the problem, and in fact, he is more upset about it than we are. In other words, Jesus gets it. Jesus totally understands. There is almost nothing as antithetical to Jesus' ministry as the stuffy hypocrisy of the religious leaders who wouldn't be caught dead with the people Jesus hung out with. And, you know, whatever the case may be, it was, it was a huge concern to, to Jesus then, and it's still a huge concern to us now, which, you know, begs the question, what in the world can we do about it? And I'm certain there's, there's more than one answer, but I do think we get a helpful lesson from Jesus in Mark 10 when his disciples mistakenly have kind of a Pharisee moment when some families were bringing their children to Jesus. Let's read in Mark 10. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. 
Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed, them, placed his hands on them, and then blessed them. Here we have an indignant Jesus, not because he was approached by some, you know, rot gut sinner or because someone dare question his power, but upset that his disciples were keeping children from approaching him. You can kind of imagine Jesus saying like, um, hey guys, excuse me, disciples, um, this kingdom that I've been talking about, this is it. Here it is right now. This is what it looks like. And where a Pharisee uses a position of power to kind of make the little guys feel even littler, Jesus welcomes the little ones and makes them feel as important as his closest friends and disciples. There's a similar passage in, in Mark 9 where Jesus' disciples are arguing amongst themselves over who is the best disciple of them all. And Jesus overhears this and is frustrated by it. And, and to teach them a lesson, he, he has a, a child who's nearby stand beside him. And he says, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me, uh, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Again, Jesus corrects them, saying the kingdom is not about welcoming greatness. It's about welcoming the vulnerability of a child. Being the greatest is not what it's all about. And these two passages, you know, they kind of play off of each other and create a picture of God's kingdom that welcomes the insignificant and the powerless because it is made up of people who are like children themselves. And it's passages like these where we get this, you know, the idea and the phrase of childlike faith. I think for us believers, it is by the faith of a child that it's the faith of a child that keeps us from becoming hypocrites that Jesus was so frustrated by and continue to be the most unappealing version of a religious person today. Through the image of a kingdom that both welcomes and belongs to those have, who have a young and unassuming faith, we get a counter to the misguided view of God's kingdom as a breeding ground for hypocrisy and self-image and his followers as Pharisees and phonies. Instead, we see Jesus' kingdom as one that welcomes children and his followers accepted, not as you know, supermen and wonder women, but as little kids. Jesus told us that Pharisees slam the door in the, faces, uh, in the faces of people and never let them go inside. Uh, but children do not operate this way. I've, you know, I've worked at an elementary school for like three weeks now, and I'm sure those of you who worked for many years uh, understand this. But I, you know, I've only been around for like two weeks, and I have already been invited to two birthday parties. <laughs> no big deal. For kids, there is very, very little gap between meeting you and inviting you in as a friend. And, you know, beyond that, is there anybody who enjoys a party more than children? I know I can remember as a kid, and maybe you can, when you're at like a family gathering or maybe like a church party, you're at a Christmas party, and there's food and people hanging out. And doesn't it just feel like you're at like the biggest, you're like in the opening scene of the Nutcracker. It just feels like you're at this biggest thing ever. A child knows how to enjoy a party and to invite others in, and we should too. Um, I, I, I was trying to think of a story from our friend Bob Goff, who maybe some of you have read, because he's just such a not 
hypocritical guy, it seems like, not a Pharisee. And he, he, I was reading his book, and I think it applies to this idea of not being a, uh, a bouncer, not being this gatekeeper who's shutting people out. Um, I read that when he came out with his book and he started speaking, a lot of kind of the religious elite came out and kind of were really harsh on him that, oh, Bob Goff, it's so watered down. Like what he's doing is just so watered down. It's just baby stuff. And he had such a great response. He said, I hope so. Aren't people thirsty? Isn't that a great, isn't that a great little turn of phrase to say, oh, no, we're the gatekeepers here. It's too watered down. I hope so. Aren't people thirsty? Isn't that a great little turn of phrase? Jesus makes sure that the Pharisees uh, know that it is not a win for them when they travel across the world to get a convert, you know, to the, to the wrong kind of, of kingdom. In fact, it's a loss. However, when it comes to children, Jesus doesn't want them shushed or shooed away. A newborn Christian is worth so much more to Jesus than a rule follower who has forgotten what it's all about. Jesus condemns the Pharisees for, bring, uh, for, you know, for, sorry, hold on. Jesus condemns the Pharisees for being more about the gold in the temple than the God in the temple. And, you know, on, you know, on, on the other hand, there is not a demographic who understands less and cares about less, you know, about money than children. They just do not understand it whatsoever. If they understood money, they would not be into Legos, you know. Uh, <laughs> It's crazy. A few years ago, we made a video here at Commonway because uh, we're, you know, we're doing a series on money, and we asked kids a bunch of questions about money. We did like an interview. It was several years ago, but we would ask kids like, how much money do you think your parents make in a year? And they'd be like, a thousand dollars. And are like, oh, okay. And then it'd be like, how much money do you think a house costs? $2,000, and it was just like no sense of what money meant. And we, you know, we all know, like, if you give a kid a $20 bill, they are like, I am set. I have generational wealth now. I'm good. I can sustain myself. It just, they just do not get it, and it's not what it's all about to them. Jesus tells the Pharisees to stop worrying about gnats and worry about the, more about the camel that you just inhaled. You know, which, by the way, is the exact kind of joke that a child at the time would have thought is hilarious. A child exemplifies what Jesus is talking about. Um, they do this because children are constantly eating gnats, <laughs> metaphorically and sometimes literally, you know. Kids are committing tiny little crimes all the time. You know, they fight, they break stuff, they disrupt, you know, they say bad words, they interrupt, they stand up on the bus. They're, they're just booger eaters, you know? <laughs> they're not perfect little angels. They're just not. And if you've spent any time with kids, you know this. You're well aware of this fact. They're rascals. However, even though, you know, they can't strain out all the gnats, they just can't, there is a level of cruelty and malice and exploitation and greed and depravity that belongs only to adults. As we get older, we gain autonomy and power and influence, and we gain the ability to kind of, you know, punch down. And a level of darkness opens up that a child can't comprehend, that a child can't get. Uh, you know, a kid, a kid would 
you know, eat a gnat or make some, you know, silly little mistake on a dare, but they'd never conceive of, you know, killing a camel. As believers, we're going to be able to, or, you know, as, as believers, are we going to be able to strain out all the gnats in our life? No, it's not going to happen. We're going to make mistakes, but we shouldn't behind, we shouldn't hide behind a paper-thin layer of goodness only to hide our bigger crimes. Jesus warns us against cleaning the outside of a filthy cup and hiding a carcass in a flower bed. We as adults are constantly trying to keep up our appearances, but as we know, you know, a child really can't hide how filthy and gross they are at from just about the moment they wake up. You know, Michael, who we have, is 10 months old, and he's very cute and all that. And there's like a grand total of like 20 minutes a day where you could like take a picture of him and it'd be like, oh, that's a good one of him. You know, because if you wait like 15 seconds at any given time, he's going to sneeze and there's going to be snot all over his face or he's going to grab food and smear it everywhere or just, you know, like kind of relax gently and quietly poop his pants. Like... He just, and even as kids get older, you know, up to a certain age, kids are just kind of constantly grubby and for the most part, totally willing to do things that make them look dorky or goofy or unrefined. And usually around adolescence, you know, when they start to turn into an adult, they start, you know, trying to look a certain way or act a certain way to be cool. And, you know, some people never get over that affliction, but most of us hopefully snap out of it at some point and spend many, many years unlearning that we need to appear a certain way or act a certain way to be accepted. A Pharisee is refined and sets the rules of appearance and keeps, you know, and, and, and keeps themselves above grubbiness at all times. But a child has almost no awareness of what they look like, uh, let alone a concern for it. Last but not least, Jesus warned us uh, that a Pharisee tries to disassociate or hide the sins or flaws or injustice that they may inherit. And so many of us in the same ways will get defensive about the idea that we may not be that different from the ugliness that surrounds us or the ugliness that is even in our past. Children uh, don't really actively do this. You know, they can't like, they're not going to parse out that necessarily. But they do provide us with a reminder that maybe we need, that we are all in some very large way a product of our environment. That, you know, when we're young enough, there's just no option to explain away or defend or, or be ashamed of the hand that we've been dealt but as we get older uh, and, you know, maybe become hypocritical, we will try to say that we don't carry around a lot of baggage and that the cloth that we're cut from is perfectly fine and there's nothing wrong with it. A life following Jesus is an invitation to set aside the pompous strut of an expert and instead take the tottering steps of a child who is loved despite our filthy hands and our scraped up souls. To me, this, this news is a relief because it gives me freedom to remain authentically imperfect in my faith rather than trying to tidy up all the time. And maybe the biggest relief of all of this is that God himself isn't a hypocrite. He didn't order us to be childlike, but then refused to lower himself down into the grubby arena of a little one. Instead of waiting for us to kind of crawl to him you know, on his throne, 
He practiced what he preached and became like a child. He had every reason not to get his hands dirty, but instead led the way by putting himself down low. Uh, Dorothy Sayers puts it so well. For whatever reason, God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death. He had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he is playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He has, he has himself gone through the whole of the human experience. From the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and thought it well worthwhile. Jesus' life and teaching uh, you know, gives me pause and my relentless effort to seem more mature and more put together and instead follow his example and stay young in my soul. There's a quote that we've visited a, a bunch over the years here at Common Way. It's that we have sinned and grown old and our father is younger than we. My hope for this morning is that we would all remember uh, the seemingly inher in inherent flaw of a religious person, which is hypocrisy. Uh, that we would be convicted by the teaching of Jesus not to become a Pharisee. And I hope that if you are someone who is sick and tired of religious two-facedness, that you would be comforted by the fact that Jesus gets it and he actually feels the same way. Um, to close, let me, let me just suggest what is you know, a simple but may, maybe painful application for all of us. And that would just be this week, you know, look at the seven woes. Look at these areas of hypocrisy that we read about um, and just admit one where you are hypocritical. Um, this can be embarrassing or hard to admit or maybe you're feeling defensive even right now. Of like, no, not me. Not me. I'm not hypocritical. But really, the most important step in not being a hypocrite is just admitting you are one, which is kind of a funny thing. Like, as soon as you admit you are a hypocrite, you stop being one, or at least it's a big step. So I recommend, you know, finding someone and actually admitting with the words from your mouth that you are a hypocrite and you need to change. Aside from that, be sure that your effort to be less hypocritical doesn't then just become an upgraded form of legalism, you know? You know what I mean? Where you're like, oh, no, no, I'm not like all those other bad Christians. Like, well, wait a minute. We just kind of did the same thing. But instead, reflect on what it would look like to be more like a child in your faith. If you would, uh, let's stand together, and if our prayer teams would come forward and take their stations, uh, let's, let's close in prayer together. Dear Heavenly Father, um, help us to give up our hypocrisy. Forgive us for all the times that we have used this new life Jesus, Jesus has given us, as a vehicle to make ourselves look good or make other people look bad. Help us to admit our hypocrisy quickly and easily and not feel defensive when it gets pointed out. Um, 
And maybe most importantly, help us instead to follow your example and welcome the gospel like a child. Help us to remember that we are as loved as sons and daughters and help us to be as common as salt and as prevailing as light and as authentic as children. God, we love you um, and pray that we can remain young in our faith and um, continue to be little ones in the arms of a father. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you all so much for being here this morning. It was so good to see you all and be with you. If you're joining with us online, thank you so much. If you have got something that you would like to uh, have someone pray with you about, to join with you in prayer, as always, we have our prayer teams up at the front. Feel free to visit one of them. Thank you all so much. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time.